Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series curated by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of finance. I'm your host, Michael Avery, steering you through the ever-shifting story of uh, our finance, banking and insurance sectors in this series. So whether you're a banking professional, a financial enthusiast or someone who simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance, you're in the right place. Now, when it comes to banking, the payments plumbing, which used to really be the dumb pipes of finance, is probably amongst the most dynamic and exciting components being reimagined thanks to things like digital wallets, instant payments, mobile money, tokenization. The list is almost endless and really being driven by this digital transformation and era that we're living in. To talk about uh, the payment trends for 2024, I'm joined this week uh, on the Monocle Banking Pod by Rory Bosman, who's uh, Executive for Sales and Marketing at Eccentric Payment Systems, uh, one of the country's rising fintech players. And uh, Rory, just a, a real pleasure having you on the pod. How are you doing? Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. Excited to share some payments information and and, then predict the future. Now, uh, just kick things off with a bit more about Rory Bosman. You've got 30 plus years of experience in tech. You were previously at Business Connection before joining Eccentric, uh, this this really exciting payments fintech. And you've been something of a serial entrepreneur as well. Is this always what you envisioned doing in high school? (laughs) I don't think anybody really uh, ends up with a uh, envision themselves when in high school. So now I've done a, a number of different things. As you said, I've been in the tech industry um, for all of my life, though, software development and uh, training and consulting and various uh, other aspects of software development. But um, yeah, other than a small deviation into the furniture manufacturer space, I've spent the bulk of the last uh, eight or 10 years in the payments industry and, and found it deeply fascinating because of the, the impact that it has you know, directly on, on our economy, our socioeconomic drivers, and also because there's so much dynamism in this space. The, the technological advances, advances, the proliferation of smartphones um, across all socioeconomic sectors, um, has really driven a, a or had a massive impact on things like financial inclusion and uh, the ability of all sectors of, of our society to participate in the mainstream economy. And um, the tech impact on that just fascinated me and kept me um, mm. actively involved and continue to do so. Well, well listening to that, I was going to ask you, um, you know, what people outside of payments should be excited about when we talk about this evolution in payments? Because uh, often you, you talk to someone about payments and the back end of uh, our financial systems, our economies, and sometimes they, their eyes glaze over and they don't realize that the system, the architecture, the, the back ends are changing at such an incredible rate. And really what that enables in terms of uh, being able to offer microfinance to uh, very small businesses, to credit vet them, to uh, financially include so many more people. So it really is an exciting space. Uh, how did you find yourself in the fintech world uh, from technology going into fintech? Uh, what Was there a particular avenue, startup, individual who introduced you into the space or was it more organic? Uh, a little bit of a combination. Um, eccentric payment systems has actually been uh, in operation for almost 25 years and uh, but focused largely on the on the the top end of the retail market um, as its customer base. So with uh, a couple of sort of 
market changes about 10 years ago. A friend of mine who's the, the, now the deputy CEO and head of innovation, Sean Holly, saw the need to develop the business into a broader market um, and sort of apply the value proposition of, of digital payments into far more customers than just the top end who were, were benefiting from the, the security and efficiency of, of what Eccentric did at the time in the payments world. Um, and, and business development and sales capacity and, and growth in that area was required in the business. So it sounded exciting. It was an industry that I knew absolutely nothing about at the time. I was, I was fascinated by the potential impact that uh, the industry could have on the, on the economy as a whole. And uh, and jumped in as a result. And you're down in the the Western Cape. I say down in the Western Cape because I'm up in Johannesburg in Parkview. But we're chatting earlier, and you told me you actually grew up around the corner in Parkhurst. Is that what um, led you to make the great emigration down to the Western Cape, or had you been living there uh, prior? No, no, I'd been living in Cape Town since I was in high school when my family moved on. But um, yeah, we've we've got team members uh, around the country in the Eastern Cape. We've got quite a few in in Gauteng as well, and and uh, a couple of people now focused on uh, sub-Saharan Africa expansion as well, mm-hmm. uh, located up north. Rapidly growing. The, the reason I asked is because it, it does fascinate me to some extent how the Western Cape has developed a reputation for being the Silicon Cape and uh, competing with the Silicon Savannah in East Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, um, M-Pesa and the mobile money stories that uh, pervade around uh, the East African region. But we are producing uh, a similar story around the tech sector in the Western Cape. What do you think it is about the ecosystem in the Western Cape that sees it uh, uh, really leading the way in South Africa for fintech? Uh, I think there are a couple of factors that sort of coalesce to to create the, a great environment for for innovation. In the in the payments world, it's somewhat driven by the fact that a lot of the large retailers, so the Shoprites and TFGs and Pick and Pays, etc., Woolworths, all have their head offices here. So retail and sort of national brand retail um, is is quite concentrated and uh, in in the Western Cape. From a tech or broader tech point of view and in innovation, there's quite a lot of drive or has been for a while. Um, and I'm, well, by a while, I mean probably 15, 20 years with innovation hubs being driven by um, the city of Cape Town and provincially um, sponsored innovation startup incubator type operations, which have largely been driven here. I think also what hasn't hurt and has contributed is that a lot of the digital media and uh, and ad agency uh, head offices are also in the Western Cape, and they tend to foster uh, creativity and innovation as well in that space. And as you say, it's a, a number of factors that have all coalesced. Uh, and then you can add in the lifestyle and the wine estates. And, the you know, if you're a mountain biker or a mountain climber or if you like surfing, I mean, there, there is just so much going for the Western Cape at the moment. Uh, it sort of makes me jealous that you've also got a pretty well-functioning government down there as uh, someone's got to endure state, uh, local government state failure here in Johannesburg. Well, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, a very interesting time to be talking about payments in South Africa because uh, just over the last couple of years, we've had the Reserve Bank and BankServe 
piloting the, the National Rapid Payments Program, the RPP. We saw PayShop introduced uh, to towards um, uh, the early part of, of last year to much fanfare. Uh, and so we really are talking about an ecosystem in payments that is changing. But I want to start with uh, one of the big trends globally that we've seen, and that's uh, BNPL, Buy Now, Pay Later. How do you see this changing the dynamics of consumer spending uh, and equally you know, it's one of those that can lead to some challenges. What do you see as the challenges and opportunities that it presents for both retailers and consumers? Well, there's there's, there's quite a lot of data indicating significant retail uh, up to, or uptick in retail sales as a result of um, merchants enabling buy now pay later products. So, for for the listeners, there a couple of brand names that they might be familiar with, Payflex, PayJustNow, Float, HappyPay, etc. Those are some of the domestic ones uh, in operation, but started in Australia and and, uh, sort of Western US uh, about 10 years ago. And the principal difference between a buy now, pay later solution and a credit card, for example, is who carries the cost of that credit. So with a buy now, pay later offering, the merchant covers the, the cost of the effectively the lending over two, three, six months um, that the repayments happen over, as opposed to a, a consumer who would cover the cost of that credit through the, the, the fees, the interest charges on their credit card. So that has shown massive appeal. Um, and as I said, uh, indicated quite an uptick in, in sales for the merchants. Um, so everybody's winning there. It also um, has less stringent barriers to entry for the consumer. You know, not everybody qualifies for a credit card, for example. Um, and what we've also, or well, the industry has found is that certainly amongst younger folk, uh, millennials, Generation Z, for example, they have developed something of an aversion to traditional credit and buying on credit. And BNPL offers the same benefit, but without the risk of, you know, accumulating a huge amount of debt over time. So it's definitely enabling greater sales for merchants. And, um, and we see that growing and continue to grow uh, and impact uh, the retail market. Uh, that, that's an interesting final point you raise there, Rory, because I, I was looking at these uh, BNPL loans and my concern was that you, they could potentially lead to consumers ending up over their heads uh, because the loans can be hard to track and they don't kind of fit within the, the, the formal credit regulator type ecosystem. Is that a concern? Is, is buy now, pay later potentially a ticking time bomb given how financially stressed South Africans are? Um, I think far less of a risk than rolling credit uh, enablement facilities are, like credit cards, for example. You know, pay the bare minimum and you can borrow again this month and you can borrow again the next month um, until you're, you know, you're living hand to mouth and essentially just paying off uh, interest on debt as a worst case scenario going forward. That's not possible with buy now, pay pay later solutions. So you've got three months to pay if the consumer doesn't pay for whatever reason. There's no extended facility for additional credit as a result of that. So it is capped and it it reduces the risk of indebtedness. Uh, From a a monitoring perspective, do you know how these particular forms of credit are are monitored in South Africa? Uh, Unfortunately, not too familiar with that. Um, I know they do form 
fall within um, the regulatory body and, and credit management uh, sort of legislation, but not. I don't have too much detail on that, I'm afraid. It would be interesting to find out um, from the National Credit Regulator how it is um, uh, monitoring this buy now, pay later trend, because it, it really is quite interesting. Uh, and to your point around the business model, uh, the fact that uh, it's offering consumers access to capital without increased costs compared to credit cards and also lowering the barriers in a country where financial inclusion is paramount. Uh, this is certainly a big trend to watch. Moving on to PayShop, and it was launched, I think, initially with only one bank offering it for free. I think it was Nedbank at the time. And uh, very much uh, the, the Reserve Bank certainly thought that this was a system that was uh, for financial inclusion purposes really going to be offered for free to some extent. Uh, we see it offered for free in markets like Brazil and, and India, for example. Um, talk to me about PayShop and uh, its initial launch and, and really whether or not the banks were out of line by charging 50 Rand, for example, for PayShop, uh, because ultimately this looks like something that, that should be free eventually. Yeah, it is a little contentious. Um, and obviously there's a lot of buzz in the in the industry and the in the market as a whole, where the fees associated with PayShop are concerned. However, it is very much on a downward trajectory from a cost point of view. Uh, you mentioned India has a, a system called Unified Payments Interface or UPI, which is prevalent and used by something like 85% of the population, if not if not more, and it facilitates almost free transactions between individuals as well as you know, business to consumer and business to business. And really, PayShop's intention or the intention of PayShop as initiated by uh, the Reserve Bank and uh, and facilitated or and operated really by Banks of South Africa was to achieve the same thing. So the driver is for financial inclusion. Folks who don't have bank accounts can't afford them and or prefer to use uh, digital payment methods for efficiency and uh, and also cost points reasons need a mechanism by which they can do so and often um, or most focused on low value high volume type transactions which are often where the the bottom of the social economic pyramid for example gets hit the hardest so folks who have cheap bank accounts often pay the most for transaction fees and um, and pay shops intention is to facilitate you know, an example we often use in the industry is somebody wants to somebody selling bananas on the side of the road yeah and uh, you come by and you want to buy one single banana and it costs five rand and you don't have cash there's no cheap and effective way for the seller and the buyer to transact um, and PayShop potentially facilitates that. So other than cash, its intention is to cost maybe 10 cents and, uh, and ensure that the seller can get his uh, his money out and be able to use it, either cash it out or be able to use it in a digital form uh, at a very low cost. And as you mentioned just now, when PayShop was initially launched, it was um, – facilitated by the four big banks in South Africa, and uh, and they were the only um, participants, as we call it. So only holders of, of bank accounts with those four big banks could enable PayShop. And, uh, and the cost per transaction was still really un, unworkably high. However, there's phase two coming along, uh, which will enable a couple of things. Uh, wow. There's no fixed date for its release yet. Yeah, no, there's definitely uh, light at the end of this journey. And PayShop phase two will facilitate things called uh, one being request to pay, which would mean I could send you a PayShop enabled request to pay for you to pay me, which has a bearing on um, 
the formal retail world. And also, and maybe more significantly, it will enable additional participants. And the primary participants that we're talking about here are the digital wallet providers. And that's where the financial inclusion will really start to, to be seen and, and, and to take effect. So, for example, if you have a, uh, an MTN Momo account or a, um, a, a Vodacom Impesa wallet or yeah. um, or, or any other digital wallet like that, where those MNOs are participating in the PayShop uh, environment, you'll be able to transact between wallets or between wallets and bank accounts via the proxy service that operates uh, or facilitates PayShop at very low cost and, and instantly. So that's coming. And that really is a game changer. And you can just see how it would benefit a merchant. It would benefit the, the really micro merchants. You can think here of car guards or uh, to your example of uh, the banana seller on the side of the road and, and really driving transactions and commerce away from cash. We still see cash in Africa. And uh, for, for the longest time that I've been covering um, banking and finance as a financial journalist, we've heard about uh, kind of the end of cash in Africa and this big drive to get people to go cashless. It's safer, it's more secure, um, it enables a level of, of credit vetting and scoring and access to cash flow and working capital for small business. It's got all of these advantages, yet it, cash is sticky in Africa. Cash has proven to be very sticky. Um, and if you look at digital wallets, they do seem to be dominating now more so than ever outside of South Africa. So let's maybe start on that point. What factors do you see contributing to this widespread adoption of digital wallets in sub-Saharan Africa versus here in South Africa, where they've probably yet to take off to the extent as a, an M-Pesa, for example, has in Kenya? Yeah, Impesa has has tried to, or has had two launches in South Africa, um, and and has certainly not had the same uh, anywhere close to the same adoption as what they've had in in Kenya, for example, where it is the dominant currency and payments and transacting platform, and that's kind of indicative of of what we see across the sub-Saharan African market as a whole. First of all, the vast majority of the population across any country has a smartphone. So the ability to communicate digitally is is very much being uh, enabled. And therefore, digital wallets, as are typically offered by the uh, mobile network operators, are very accessible, um, very cost-effective, and, and have, as a result, um, become the dominant payments and transacting uh, and money movement platforms across that uh, that geography. Not always the same ones dominate uh, in different countries. Um, and we mentioned Impesa, there's MTN Mobile Money. Every country has its uh, its dominant mobile wallet player. Uh, not something that we see in South Africa uh, typically. And um, the reasons for that are proliferation of smartphones, cost effectiveness and accessibility of those wallets and the high cost of, of bank accounts. So given that, how do you see this adoption, this widespread adoption of digital wallets in sub-Saharan Africa? I was looking at the GSMA uh, 2023 State of the Industry report, and it reckons um, there are more than 184 million Africans across the continent embracing mobile money. Uh, and that, that's a huge figure. Um, and we know it's a, a continent uh, of a billion uh, plus people. So it's it's heading you know, in the right direction. It's still not where it should be. Uh, but given that, how do you see this impacting traditional banking? Or are the two going to partner and start working together? We do see them partnering. Um, we have a number of banks as uh, as partners and customers outside of South Africa. And less than half 
of the transactions that those banks are processing, and obviously it's a rule of thumb and a generalization, but it is a it is a fairly evident one, are actually traditional scheme-endorsed card transactions. And what I mean by that are initiated through cards that are branded as Visa, MasterCard, American Express, etc. And uh, the majority are trans- majority of people are transacting through through mobile wallets. And whether it's person to person or person to retailer, um, and some often those retailers are informal traders as opposed to part of the formal retail establishment as as you and I would identify with in South Africa. But it is dominant and we, we see it continue to do so. That said, I think two-thirds, uh, that GSMA report reckons two-thirds of transactions across sub-Saharan Africa revolve around cashing in or out. So there, mm. there's still a sense that, you know, it, it's not used as your day-to-day transacting, you know, um, vehicle. Uh, so trust, I think, is obviously a crucial factor in the adoption of mobile money and digital wallets. What are the challenges specifically that you see in building trust amongst consumers when transitioning from physical cash to digital, especially in regions where the adoption has been a little bit slower, such as in South Africa? How can we speed that up? Um, Michael, uh, we don't think that it's it's the trust factor. It's the enablement factor that uh-huh. is that will that will determine that. Um, a number of years ago, we enabled Mpesa as a payment method for a large South African retail chain that had that had expanded into Kenya, for example. And this was the precisely the the challenge that um, our client needed to address was the fact that 85% of their customer base used Mpesa, and in order to transact in store, as it were, they had to cash out and then come and pay with cash, which costs money on on two fronts. One, there's a transaction fee to you know convert your Mpesa balance into hard. Kenyan shillings, and then it costs the retailer as well to bank that cash once they get it in. And um, what we as a centric facilitated was the, the ability for um, Mpesa wallet holders to transact directly with the retailer using Mpesa, which reduced the cost or removed the cost effectively on both sides of the consumer and the retailer. And I just mentioned that as an example of what will make the, the biggest difference to you know promoting the financial inclusion project using digital wallets as the, as the base. And it's no different in South Africa to the rest of the continent. Uh, it's just more enabled uh, in South Africa. And then the digital interfaces at point of sale, um, and sometimes online as well, is really where there's a lot of growth and investment happening at the moment to facilitate exactly this. It, it sounds like an easy thing to do, but it involves coordinating and streamlining the different payment methods, gateways, providers, uh, all of these um, having to come together in the background to give you as the consumer just a, a very a seamless experience. You as a consumer, you want to be able to maybe whip out your smartphone, be able to tap it, pay, move on. In fact, I think it's almost become a little bit too easy in some instances with like a, a Google tap to pay or, or Apple pay or whatever. Uh, what, what are the difficulties, the challenges in getting that kind of integration to work to ensure that we can solve for that enablement uh, challenge? Well, there, there are two things. Uh, that dominate those challenges and uh, the work needed to to overcome them. One is security, uh, and the other is enable performance, shall we say. So, anything payment related is is heavily legislated globally and dominated by compliance frameworks that are material to ensuring reducing or limiting fraud and and ensuring 
um, the right account gets debited and the, and the right one gets credited. So there's quite an effort and cost involved in, in, in maintaining compliance by all the players in a, in a payments uh, value chain. South Africa is, is a market which is, is heavily compliant and has a very robust payments network and payments infrastructure. Globally, it's, it's recognized as being very solid which makes a, a significant difference and in, in part because of um, the history of developing economy threats from fraud and bad actors looking to target that economy, but also because of the proliferation of alternate payment methods such as digital wallets and, and uh, non-conventional methods like checks, for example, which are, which are still very prevalent in markets like the U.S., um, we've evolved and grown our payment environment significantly beyond uh, what a lot of the developed markets have done. And that has required uh, a lot more stringent compliance to, to payment structures. So that's the first thing. There's um, maintaining and sorry, the second thing is because of the number of digital payment and alternate payment methods available in the market, all offered and enabled through different service providers, for things or institutions like payment gateways, which uh, online stores use to facilitate and offer payment methods to their consumers, as well as companies like Eccentric that facilitates card and digital payment uh, happening in store. Um, doing the compliant integrations and facilitating all of those different payments methods through a single point of contact requires a lot of integration and back-end technical plumbing work with a number of different players in the market. And uh, that can take some time. And then obviously you, you get different levels of service that are also um, and, and robustness that are provided by those service providers, which um, requires some, some clever alternate least cost routing, shall we say, type um, type work, which we the, the industry is typically referring to as payment orchestration, right. to facilitate different payment methods service providers to enable their tech um, and their payment methods for a single customer. I think payment uh, orchestration is an is an interesting trend, especially with the the growing importance of of e commerce here. And um, if you look at uh, the fact that Amazon is now coming into the South African market, e-commerce, uh, ever since COVID really, has now become mainstream. I think people are very comfortable with it, uh, the rise of 60, 60, all of that. Could you just explain how artificial intelligence, which is another one of these hugely important uh, tech developments, is playing a role in payment orchestration and what challenges merchants face in offering these diverse payment methods and maybe how AI then Will, will come into its own because uh, I believe AI is another one of those, um, you know, it's another use case for AI. We're just discovering more and more every day. What role do you see it playing in payment orchestration? So two things. One, the primary value there that we're seeing is, uh, is in determining the least cost routing option for making a payment. So just to use an earlier example, with Buy Now Pay Later, for example, a consumer is presented at checkout, let's say online, with a number of different ways to pay. Um, you can use your Visa or MasterCard. There's a voucher option, perhaps, or a number of voucher options, and maybe there's buy now, pay later uh, alternatives. And based on the consumer's personal profile, banking profile, and av available informational information that they've made available, as well as performance data that a, a back-end system might have available in terms of transaction speed, transaction approval rates, reliability, 
an, an AI interface is able then to make a, either a recommendation to the consumer as to which is which should be their preferred method uh, of paying, or to digitally enable that in the background and say, well, okay, you've got two or three BNPL options. Option A seems to be the most reliable and is uh, and has recently been the most the highest success rate or approval rate for transactions, and therefore automatically choose that route for um, for the, the online store to to facilitate. And effect, effectively, the the outcome of that is higher approval rates and a, and a better customer experience at the time of, of checkout. Yeah, which is uh, fantastic for the customer. It, it's great for the retailer. It creates stickiness and loyalty and all of those good things. And I can see this kind of technology being used for, I don't know, loyalty programs, maybe inventory or stock management as well. I'm already really impressed with the way 6060 is leveraging this for personalized offers um, for me. And I can just see how this will be expanded out. Just lastly, Rory, as uh, sadly we are reaching the end of our time, just to wrap things up, what would be your key piece of advice for businesses in South Africa that are navigating this ever-evolving payments landscape, especially considering some of these trends and, and challenges that we've discussed today? The biggest thing, that, and this is based on, on our customer research, um, our customers that speak to us directly and approach us with these challenges, two things are have to be non-negotiable. One, whoever their service providers are from a payments point of view, and you know, based on everything we've been discussing today, it's evident that there's a pr- proliferation of different offerings available from a number of different sources. Um, and it can be a little overwhelming, we found, especially for mid-market retailers, is A, try as, as far as possible to enable a single service provider to manage and facilitate all of your payment options. Uh, it's in becoming more and more of a driver to, to offer the payment methods that consumers want. Um, and two, ensure this, both the security and the, and the compliance and reliability of that, of that partner that you engage in the market. Well, I mean, I can understand why, given all of the complexity that we've uh, just uh, skimmed the surface of in the last uh, 35 minutes. Rory Bosman, thank you very much. Executive for Sales and Marketing at Eccentric Payment Systems. That wraps up uh, this week's episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast, talking all about the uh, really exciting world of payments and how things like buy now, pay later, AI and digital wallets are changing the way we transact and do business and hopefully shifting more people into digital. Before we go, we'd like to extend our gratitude to you, our growing audience, for tuning in. Please uh, share the podcast and remember, you can find us on all good podcast platforms. Uh, Reach out to me at uh, Badger on Twitter or email the team at Monocle Solutions. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, don't forget to subscribe.